I just want to bring up the subject of trials. In fact, uh, I meant to bring my phone up here and re read James uh, 1, 2 through 4. Somebody, uh, can, can we get James 1, 2 through 4 on the board there? Then turn there, James 1, 2 through 4. Because sometimes um, I think um, this is probably my fault. The, the guys who discipled me in the Lord, you know, we had that little uh, message for a minute or so uh, recorded for Catherine's uh, 50th anniversary from a guy named Joseph McAuliffe, who probably taught me more about walking with God than anybody, any other single individual in the world. Uh, he was my pastor for doing the math, about 17 years. And, uh, um, and I think when, you know, when he first became my pastor, I was 17 years old and he was probably like 22. Um, and, you know, we both have planted churches together and things like that. Um, but he, he had a real emphasis on this concept. So let's read this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, so think, think of what he's saying there, consider. In other words, when you actually, no matter what's happening to your life, your lunch, your boss, uh, your financial situation, the, it really gets down to what are you considering it? How, what are you thinking about it? Like, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is, Proverbs says. So he's telling you, like, don't grumble, don't complain, don't consider it abnormal. Uh, Peter has a parallel verse in his epistle that says uh, to, to consider it. Uh, don't, you know, don't be alarmed when all these terrible things happen to you. Trials and temptations and difficult times are God's way of loving us. A uh, pastor uh, from Pittsburgh named Joseph Garlington, who was kind of the head worship leader back in the... Um, Promise Keepers movement, and uh, kind of big in our circles in the 70s, uh, he was very funny in his teaching. So he was teaching on this subject of God and his providence and his taking us through difficult times. And he said, he's, he was joking, but he said, Lord, it's no wonder you don't have more friends the way you treat the ones you got already. But, <laughs> uh, you know, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, which could be to that could be translated testings or temptations, exams, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Uh, King James would say long-suffering. I'm pretty sure if anybody has King James there. Uh, stick to That's the word I made up, but I like that word. Is it a real word? <laughs> she used to say stick to I I really like that, stick to Like... Um, the, probably the deepest work that God has done in my life is uh, my oldest brother, who's long since deceased, used to point out when I was growing up that I started many things and was like this promising musician and athlete and so forth. But to get to any certain kind of level of maturity, you have to stick to it through various difficulties. And you, you've got to you know, it does, there's a time when practicing isn't fun if you're a musician and you just got to press through until someday it is fun again. But you got to, no matter, whatever you achieve, uh, you know, like getting a PhD, it's not fun every day. <laughs> is that right, Michael? 
<laughs> so, Sam, was there days that it wasn't that fun? <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I invested you always have fun every day. Not, not always. Uh, so uh, stick-to-itiveness, uh, the testing of your face, faith produces the ability to not quit. And let not quitting and endurance have its perfect, and the Greek word for perfect there is the, uh, related to integrity. It's related to the, uh, the word for, that we get integer from, which uh, is a whole number, so that you might be complete, not fractured. You know, what really comes to mind, if you understand, when we, before we know Christ, we're still made in the image of God, and we still retain some of God's image, but it's all screwed up, right? <laughs> Anybody was screwed up when they first came to Christ? <laughs> Anybody still screwed up? <laughs> and, uh, and he's saying, let, let, let God make you whole. And, and t difficult times uh, are the best times. I honestly have come to the place where the death of my little brother, the death of my best friend, uh, losing everything I had sacrificed to build for 17 years, you know, all these kind of experiences are the best things that ever happened to me because they made me a more complete, more godly man. And I was trying with all my heart to avoid that, <laughs> right? You know, we like to pretend we're all like zealous and I'm just seeking everything God wants for me and so forth. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I'm going to probably give a message again sometime in the next few weeks about trials. But keep in mind that, you know, this, I hope you all have memorized by now the thing I always call the three-legged stool. One, God is providential that it is he's sovereign. Out of the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty comes the doctrine of God's providence. Nothing touches your life that God doesn't intend for your good. That's why you got in that car accident. That's why you had that mean boss. That's why you had that difficult spouse. That's why you had Pastor Craig. <laughs> and various other forms of trials. <laughs> Because uh, God loves you. That's why. And the path of least resistance makes both rivers and people crooked. So, you know, part of all this is don't, so many people when they go through difficult times, they kind of withdraw from the body of Christ, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. They get less involved. Get more involved. <laughs> Uh, you, because the answer is not in yourself. If you, a lot of people like to withdraw so they can look inside their fuzzy navel more and contemplate their deep inner beings and so forth. And you're not going to find, the only thing I ever found deep inside me was this giant black hole. <laughs> and uh, the answers are in Christ. And, and Christ lives in his church. And he lives in the scriptures. And he lives in uh, involvement. I, the Charlie Brown principle for the, if you ever watch the Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, is it Linus that, uh, or Lucy that says, what you need is involvement. <laughs> um, I love that. It's really great. Like, that is, like, it's amazing 
uh, how many times there's a correlation between people who are uh, not overly uh, involved to the point where they don't have time to be alone with God and study and draw near to God. But I never know anybody who's kind of isolating themselves that, has, that doesn't make the whole trial thing worse. That always makes it worse. So um, we'll talk more about trials, but the three-legged stool, step number one, he is in control of what happens in your life. That's why the lightning hit your house in the first place. You know, in the past uh, 20 years, I've had four phone systems that's destroyed because our house gets hit by lightning a lot. And we've invested thousands of dollars in, in lightning-resisting equipment. I'm just a magnetic. No, it's because we have our houses. <laughs> our house is surrounded by five telephone poles. And uh, so we get hit by lightning all the time. And it usually costs us three to $7,000 in equipment. So that's happened actually, I think, four times since we started our business 20 years ago. Um, so Victor just got a new phone system where uh, it doesn't need any uh, plug-in to, uh, uh, to actual phone lines. It's all internet-based, but, but it's still plugged into ultraviolets, so it probably still can blow up. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but, you know, uh, number one, God is providential. You've got to realize that. You have a lousy job. What is God doing good in this? You'll, you know, I, I, the hardest job I ever had was the year I worked in the factory, and there's a long story that I won't bore you with because I don't want to take all John's time up. But it was very difficult. And I, you know, I uncovered this plot to, to get bad radiators through so they could get the foreman on the, se the second shift. And so, the, you know, I was involved in this controversy that involved all the, all the key people in the company, thousands of radiators, and I, and I was the one that was fighting everyone to say, we can't let these bad radiators be shipped. And uh, I was, you know, 21 years old. It was my first post-college job. And it was one of the hardest things I ever went through. And I still remember the exact day and time when I was walking down this one aisle of the factory and I just cried out and said, God, I will thank you and I will praise you and I'll bless you for this job in this difficult time if you have me work in this factory the rest of my life and I never get to do the things that are in my heart about uh, pastoring and leading people to Christ and starting churches. If I never get to do any of that, I will thank you for this and praise you for this with no grumbling for, for as long as it takes. And it was shortly thereafter that the Lord dropped it in my heart to go to graduate school. And I thought the, the elders of the church would th think that's crazy because I was going back to get a master's in history, which is really stupid. Um, but it was because of that that, I, that they asked me to start a campus ministry, which is what launched me into the ministry because so many people came to Christ uh, over 70 people joined the church through that campus ministry in the first three years of it and got born again, baptized in the spirit, delivered, and then I, and I was launched into what I was supposed to do for a lifetime. And it all started with a decision not to grumble or complain, but to thank God and to, and to praise him and to never vary at all ever from that. And I resolved that very firmly. 
That's the second thing. You know, God is not only sovereign, but he's good. That's why the only proper response to close people to, your, to you dying, losing jobs, various trials, is to start with thanksgiving and praise. Because he's good and he means it for your good. Now, without this third ingredient, you'd be a fool to be doing what I'm saying in the first two. But the third ingredient is he is able. He's able, you know, some of the things that look the most hopeless, the death of both of my brothers, uh, the death of my best friend, uh, hurting my back when I was 18, so I've, I've had to deal with back pain and every day for 40-some years. These are the best things that have ever happened to me. And they're, they're what made me a better uh, person, which makes me better to love and serve the people God's called me to love and serve. And so my greatest failures and darkest times have been the best things that have ever happened. So consider it all joy because, thirdly, he's able to bring about the desired result. He's... He's not going to bring a trial into your life and then you go through it properly with thanksgiving and praise and obedience and so forth. Then, up, oh, what? I couldn't, I couldn't get her there. He's actually able to, re, to rebuild you and restore you and make you anew in Christ because he made you in the first place. And he, in salvation, he's remaking you. So keep those, that three-legged stool idea. God is providential because he's sovereign. Nothing touches your life that he didn't ordain. Two, he always means the darkest things, anything, is ultimately designed for your good. Even great humiliating and deeply painful experiences are ultimately what can form you to be the person he's always called you to be. And thirdly, he's able to complete it. It doesn't matter if the trial lasts 40 years. Uh, you know, I can't believe this is happening, but I, the, the back surgeon I've been discussing is a guy from the same place uh, in India that, um, I, I'm forgetting how to say your name, ne next to Carlos. How, what is it? Five out. He's from, he's from your state, home state, my, the doctor I'm talking to. Uh, and he, uh, he's an amazingly anointed guy. He's 38 years old. And uh, I think this is actually going to work. And, like, that would change my life, like, just about as much as getting saved. And, uh, you know, to actually be able to walk and all that kind of stuff again would be just crazy amazing. And uh, it's looking like that might happen. It's going to take about six months to get in shape enough for the surgery. But, um, you know, it looks like it's a... So, like, God is actually able, even if the trial has gone... Like, we have a... We're such instant oats kind of people. You know those packages of instant oats? If you've ever used those, please repent. <laughs> You know, like if you don't use the, the rolled oats and cook it the right way, it, you're, you're sinning against God. <laughs> it's, it's made of gour gum. Read what gour gum is sometime. Uh, the, you know, we want instant results. They actually used to, 
to tell, try to tell you in the 60s, there were all these commercials for a thing called instant coffee. And they tried to convince people that it was good. <laughs> and people were buying it. People will buy anything. Instant is not good. Instant anything is not good. It, um, make your oats the old-fashioned way. <laughs> in, in terms of walking with God, it, don't, don't quit because this trial's gone on for five years. That, that is such a modern, uh, deceived way of thinking that we're so brainwashed in that it's supposed to just yield to, uh, you know, we, we fast from uh, lunch to dinner and quote two Bible verses and pray for 30 seconds and we should have great results. And uh, sometimes uh, what God is doing is so valuable that it's worth taking 40 years to get there. I hope you're hearing me. And with that, I'll turn it over to John Gray. But trials, you can't live without them. Please turn to John chapter 3, verse 30. So a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, who's that? It's Jesus. He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, okay, what they just said is, everybody you've loved, pastored, discipled for, like everything you ever worked for, all of your disciples are leaving you and going over to this other pastor. And what is in John the Baptist's heart? John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. That sounds like Job. The Lord, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. The name of the Lord be praised. Amen. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly. He was rejoicing greatly that all his disciples were leaving him to follow Jesus. That was the first thing. That, that was the thing that he cherished deepest in his heart. That he would gladly see the loss of everything he'd ever worked for so that Christ might have his holy church, so that Christ might have his people. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That, brothers and sisters, is the essence of Christianity. It's the essence of following Christ. It's the essence of worship. And all of our suffering and struggling, all of our suffering at somebody else's, that, that it was somebody else's fault, all of our suffering that's our own fault, all of our, all of our suffering that's, so to speak, nobody's fault because when more than one person in the universe exists, there's conflict. 
unless they're in perfect agreement and we're different, so therefore there's conflict. So it's logical that, of course, there's going to be conflict, and conflict is suffering. So there's multiple reasons we have suffering, and it doesn't matter whose fault it is, because God is using this kind of, this reason, for this cause of suffering, this cause of suffering, and this cause of suffering, and in his wisdom, having no fault in himself, he's working it all together for your good. The day that we cry out that painful cry of, he must increase, I must decrease, that's when we've gotten saved. That is the essence of salvation. And this brings us to week two of Romans chapter eight. Why did Christ die for us? Romans chapter eight, verse four. So basically, if you hear deeply Josiah's message from last week and again this week and next week, and I think he's probably going to go at 10.30 and the Romans 8 message will probably be at 9.30. We'll figure that out. If you, if you get what Josiah is saying, if, the, if, what, if all of these things are working to produce meekness and gratitude towards God in your heart, then, 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 you've, then you can read Romans 8 and get it. And if that's not happening, Romans 8 kind of like has no meaning to you, right? It's, we don't, we don't like see God's law, and we're going to talk today about struggling against sin and our desire to obey God, but the competing and conflicting desire in us to disobey God and follow our heart, right? And our heart is full of, out of the heart come all kinds of evil desires and greed and sensuality and sexual immorality and uh, selfish ambition and, and murder and contentions and strife and the like, right? Um, God is taking us through a process and no other process will do. And it's when we come to him at the cross that we discern that truth that is the essence of metaphysical reality. That Christ had to suffer and die for me. And apart from me joining in that war against sin that every Christian lives and breathes from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, and sometimes we even have troubling dreams, yeah. unless we go through that, that baptism, that lifelong sanctification, we will not grow up into maturity into our head who is Christ. So all of these things, all the suffering that Greg was talking about is for your sanctification and without it, there would be no sanctification. God has ordained that life would be full of suffering because there is no better way. It is his wisdom and his goodness that has led to his decision in eternity past that the world as it is broken though it may be, yet for we who will belong to him, a testing ground that brings us near to God and glorifies him 
is the best of all possible worlds. Romans chapter 8. Um, we have two main points today. We will answer the question, why did God send his son to be condemned for our sin? And we'll find the answer to that question in Romans 8.4. Romans 8.4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So why did Christ die for you? Was it so that you could go to heaven? The answer to that is not no, but a weak or partial yes. He died to, to, to use up all the wrath of God that was against you, but now there's no wrath of God left. There's no condemnation remaining. He died to cancel the written code with its commandments and ordinances that stood against you so that you might obey him as a wholehearted disciple with no strings attached, with no conditions on whether or not you were going to make it or whether or not your obedience was good enough because his obedience is good enough. And because his obedience is good enough, we are we are able to live a life fully committed to him. That is, we are able to walk out our salvation with fear and trembling in such a way that the conditions and the stakes, are the risk of judgment is gone. He canceled the written code and Satan, the accuser of the brothers, was hurled down forever and every demon in the spiritual realms that wanted to get a, get a chance to accuse you, all of the condemnation is invalidated at the cross. All of these things he did in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This big, or, or might be done in us, done for us and done by us. I think there's a, a double meaning here. This begs another question, since we know we are people who love sin and, who are, and in whose hearts that pride of life is constantly rising up that brings us so low. It begs another question. How can that happen? I talk so nice about wholehearted devotion to Christ and, and obeying him wholeheartedly, but how do we get there? Because let's be realistic. Just look inside ourselves for a minute, you know? And we will find the answer to that question spread out over the next 12 verses, but summarized in the second half of Romans 8, 4. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that makes all the difference. When we are learning to crucify our flesh with its passions and desires and mature in obedience to God, all Christians obey God. It's the mark of the believer, according to 1 John.
Romans 8, 4. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. It's done through faith. Setting the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Getting everything right isn't life and peace. For, for the kingdom of God is not uh, eating everything right, drinking everything right, doing everything right, you know, keeping this and that regulation and rule. The kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Setting the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So hostile means at war with. Those who are at war are enemies, and you can't simultaneously be enemies and friends. So is this verse talking about a Christian? Good question. It's talking to Christians. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. These verses are talking about non-Christians, but they're written to Christians for Christians. These things were written down as warnings to Christians. And so it can say, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, who is fellowshipping with our spirit, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, <clears throat> he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So, so that, that warning that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God or is against God, it's like has no fellowship with God, is actually a warning to you and me every morning because Guess what? We have the flesh, and the flesh is hostile to God. This is a little bit mysterious, but I think we can be theologically accurate if we take it as written at face value. And we understand it's for us, and that the Spirit does live in us who belong to Him. Right? The flesh is like a down escalator. Everybody's been on an escalator. Escalators, they've got the up one and they've got the down one and whatever. And if, when you were a kid, you know, if you were at the airport or the department store or whatever with your parents, if you had the chance to get away from your parents or break free from their loving 
uh, handhold and grasp, you probably tried to go down the up escalator and up the down escalator, and you probably had a blast, and you probably learned something that is key about life as a saint. Your flesh is a down escalator, and every day you've got to move forward. You've got to be seeking Christ. Christ has to draw you to himself every day so that the gravity of your depravity doesn't bring you down. In this war that is going on inside you between you and the Spirit of God who lives in you and has called you and the flesh which sometimes captures your attention and leads you astray until you repent, praise the Lord. In this war, it is not our effort that makes all the difference. It is the Spirit that makes all the difference. And so we say with the psalmist in Psalm 131, um, uh, John Maddox and I are memorizing some psalms, and I think I'm going to beat him. Um, Psalm 131 is one of them. Um, we say with the psalmist, O Lord, my, eyes are not, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother is my spirit within me like a weaned child with its mother. The discipline of every morning, quieting ourselves, coming before the Lord, and crying out to God for grace, and entering his gates with thank yous, which necessarily means stepping outside of myself and the momentum I was traveling on as I was going, moving into my work day or my day as a parent or whatever, I have to stop and kind of step outside that step away from that momentum and still and quiet my spirit and come before the Lord and start to thank him and praise him for what? It's usually for something going wrong. This is, this is how we walk out. This is how Romans 8 gets put into action. We thank him in suffering and we consider it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds. In doing that, we are welcoming the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that makes all the difference. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit brings us near to God, sanctifies us, and this brings glory to God who deserves all the glory in the universe. It would be a great crime against physics and logic and truth. It would be a great wrong done in the universe if God didn't get all the glory that is due him. And God gets the greater glory when weakened, struggling, suffering Christians worship him and thank him for what in his wisdom and goodness he's doing for our good so that we might be 
brought together and grown up into the fullness of the measure of the stature and image of Christ. And it takes suffering to get there. And that is right. And when out of that suffering, we cry out to God, glory to God, and glory to God in the highest, and when shepherds in the dark largely excluded from normal society on the hillsides of, uh, of those, those hills at the annunciation of the birth of Christ to the shepherds, when they joined in with the song of the angels, glory to God in the highest, they were meeting God in the way that every one of us has to. We have to meet him in meekness. We have to meet him in brokenness. We have to meet him usually through loss and failure. And when we start there, we meet God, we see God more clearly as he really is because we recognize the greater distance between him and us. And God gets greater praise than if we, riding high on you know, the, the wings of success, said, thank you God for success, this is great. But our hearts weren't moved and we didn't sense that deep desperation for him that God deserves. If God were a lesser God, it wouldn't be necessary for us to be desperate for him. But when we lack desperation for God, that's something that intrinsically there's something missing from our praise and our prayers. When we are desperate for God, we see the real God. Therefore, it is right that we must enter the kingdom of God through many trials. My hope is that through this passage of Scripture and in these sermons on Romans, our Father will recast your identity and your purpose in life. As we will see, it is God's purpose that your identity in Christ and your purpose in life will not be matured except through suffering. And the suffering of struggling with sin is what brings into proper perspective for us the greatness of God and the glory of God. And it is in suffering through struggling against sin that produces, I think, our deepest and sweetest fellowship with him. You need to struggle against sin as a part of growing up from a spiritual child to a spiritual adult. Like Christ, our older brother, who continually walks beside us through the valley of the shadow of death. And who bears the yoke with us, but pulls the greater portion. Pulling for us so that we might be sanctified together with him. Because we never suffer alone. We'll repeat this in a second, but uh, verse 16, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The truth contained in that is that we suffer with him we never suffer alone as Christians. Because sin lives in us, we don't automatically walk in the Spirit. One of the reasons we don't walk in the Spirit or keep in step with the Holy Spirit is that we haven't become disciples of Jesus. The definition of a Christian is a disciple of Jesus. 
And to follow him is to follow him wherever he goes. To those who wanted to be his disciples, supposedly, at least they had something in their heart about being his disciples, he said, you know, they said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And what did he say? He said, I have no place to lay my head. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When you become a Christian, that is a follower of Christ, that is a disciple, when, when you leave the world and are joined with him through a baptism into death, and when you are raised with that new identity of child of God, of bond slave, you're leaving behind something that you're going to have to continue to leave behind every day. It's yourself. It's, it's that thing that says inside of you, I owe it to myself to treat myself right. Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors. We do owe somebody, not the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Why does it say sons and not sons and daughters? In the ancient world, uh, who got the inheritance? The person who got the biggest part of the inheritance was the firstborn. And then the person who got the rest of the inheritance was the rest of the sons. But in God's economy, it's not the way man does business, dividing men and women and treating this person or this rich person or this poor person worse or better, this male or female better or worse. In God's economy, everybody gets the inheritance. That's what it's saying here. Christ is the firstborn over all creation, meaning everything belongs to him. But in, in, God's, in God's family, we are joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Going back, verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Fear of what? If you've read 1 John, it talks about fear has to do with punishment, right? This is not just fear of punishment. This is also fear of failure in the Christian life. Failure in the Christian life that leads to condemnation from myself, from others, from God, right? We did not receive the Holy Spirit of, of, the Holy Spirit is not a spirit of slavery because his commandments are not burdensome. We did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, fear of punishment, fear of judgment, fear of failure that leads to condemnation. But we receive the spirit that sets us free from all these things, the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Turn to Galatians 4, 6. And if children, then heirs. I have this verse on a, on a sticky note on my desk at work, so I have to read it every day unless I don't do any work. And I work every day. Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, 
God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, it's like, Dad, Father. Dad is, like, is not the cry of the, of the child who's uh, full of a spirit of rejection and condemnation and who's like, doesn't get the full privileges and rights and responsibilities of, of all the other children, all the other family members. The child who cries, Dad, is the child that knows before he approaches Dad that Dad's waiting for him with open arms. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Dad, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And Romans 8, 17, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Second Corinthians chapter Four. Please turn there. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses sixteen through eighteen. Let's put it up on the board and we'll get right there. Today we have looked at something of a mystery. The mystery of ongoing struggle with sin in the life of the saint. You will ask, why does God let me sin? And that question, of course, contains the sneaky accusation that my sin is God's fault. Does it not? Let's try this. Why does God let me fail? Next week, we'll dig further into why and how does God use suffering to sanctify us and glorify himself. For now, let it be enough that Christians never suffer alone. Verse 17, we suffer with him. Our suffering is purposeful. Our suffering is with him. And our suffering is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. The computer is faster than me. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, this light and temporary suffering, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Who hopes for what he already has? For the things that are seen are, are transient. They're traveling by. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Back to Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen? Amen. As we conclude... 
Let's have the servers of communion come forward, please. Verse 16 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. These things may take time for you to believe. God has made room for you to grow in faith over the course of your life. As a beginning Christian, I did not believe that I was greatly loved, like the Lord said to the prophet Daniel. I did not feel like a child of God, like it says to us today in Romans 8. I couldn't see it at the time, but now I see it. Hold on in hope, and you will see it too. God really does use all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Continue to love God and embrace community when you fail because God continues to love you when you fail. The Holy Spirit will sanctify you through and through. It says it. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit is not more holy than the Father or the Son, but he is called the Holy Spirit because his identity is tied to our identity. He is making us holy, and he will have the prize for which he died. Jesus died for you, and his death was not in vain. He will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations, a holy church, and we will have the prize for which he died. When we see him, we will become like him. We will have him. And anyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself as he is pure. It is the spirit that makes all the difference. Seek and welcome the spirit. Please come forward to the communion table.